This episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. McDonald's is celebrating their crew members who help everyone feel a sense of community whenever they stop into a Mickey D's. Whether you know that one crew member who always remembers that you like your Big Mac with an extra pickle, or the crew member who always greets you in the drive-thru with a warm smile. Thank you, McDonald's crew members everywhere for making our McDonald's visits even more special. McDonald's, I'm loving it. I'm not sure there's anything to be gained by that. Yes, there is. Her peace of mind. She's done God's will about as immaculately as any human for the past 40 years. She's earned the right to say anything she likes. And it's our job to support her. Unconditionally. Since when have you sung that tune? Since day one he sung that tune. Day one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I am David Chen. And I'm here today with at Joy O'Napping on Twitter. Joy, thanks for chatting with me today. Hello, Gov. Well, it's already off to a bad start. Today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing The Crown, Season 5, Episodes 4, 5, and 6. That's Episodes 4, 5, and 6. The titles of those episodes are Annis Horribilis, The Way Ahead, and Ipatiev House. Uh, we are in the middle of our crown coverage. We've previously done a season four post-mortem season five preview and season five episodes one, two, and three. Today we're doing four, five, and six. One episode will remain of this podcast that covers the crown, which is episodes seven, eight, nine, and 10 of the crown season five. That's what we'll be covering next time. Uh, but yeah, today we're going to be discussing season five episodes four, five, and six. Again, that's Annis Horribilis, The Way Ahead, and Ipatia House. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com and uh, find us on TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube at decodingtv. Uh, we did get a couple very nice emails and messages this week, Joy, you know, uh, saying they listened to our last Crown recap episode and they, they appreciate this format so far. So, this format of, of breaking it into pieces? Yeah. Not uh, like it, one episode per podcast? Right. I mean, it's not at all clear how one should cover a binge show on Netflix, um, but we decided to break it into three chunks, and people seem to like that so far. But of course, if you have any other opinions about it, you can let us know at decodingtv at gmail.com. All right. I also want to mention, by the way, that if you want to support podcasts like this one, you can become a member at decodingtv.com, become a paid member, get episodes early, get ad-free episodes, and so forth. We really appreciate all of the DecodingTV.com members for making this podcast possible. So, uh, Joy, we've been a bit behind in posting YouTube videos of this podcast. Um, but So people have not been able to see your Sangringham outfit yet. I am figuring out a way to get those videos up. But obviously, it's a, you know, as we're recording this, it's uh, Thanksgiving week. And so it's probably not going to happen until after Thanksgiving. But... Uh, You appear to have a new look today, and people listening won't be able to see it, but why don't you describe it to people? Uh, Thank you for reading the prompt that I wrote for you. Um, So I am wearing a red sweatshirt, oversized. This is an homage to two different iconic Diana looks. One is that in the 90s, she starts going to LA Fitness a lot, like a public gym, and she's frequently photographed wearing these huge sweatshirts and little bike shorts, and so you'll see that during the season of The Crown. But also in the 80s, when she was really like just starting to date Charles, she had um, worn a sweater. They call it a jumper over in the UK. 
um, that is made of wool and it's got little sheep all over it. And uh, one, it's a little white sheep, but one of the sheep is black. And it really felt like an omen for what was going to happen to her with the family. So, you know, that was done by a little British brand called Warm and Wonderful. So I am wearing a Warm and Wonderful sheep sweatshirt today. You can't tell, but the sheep is puffy. Um, and leaning back for the folks on camera to see it. Um, it is – this brand basically went dormant for a couple of decades, but it's back now. It's a re-release in 2020. So this outfit I call Kicking It at Kensington Palace. Well, it's very fashionable and very Diana-esque. So uh, nicely done on all counts. Thank you. I don't know if it's fashionable. It's probably better on someone who's like six feet tall and Anglo-Saxon. But, you know, I'm five foot three and that's most of the way to six feet tall. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a good idea to bundle up because icy winds are certainly blowing through the Windsor family. Yes, as well as through the roof of their ruined castle. All right. Well, let's get into it. Uh, Let's talk about episodes four, five and six. Let's start with uh, episode four. Um, we left off last episode, episode three, with Mumu or Mohammed Al Fayed meeting Diana. Uh, fireworks surely about to go off, and it seems like uh, that may in fact happen at the start of episode four, which is titled "Anis Horribilis." Uh, the Queen is is shown about to give a speech marking the fortieth year of her reign, while news coverage voiceover tells us she is about to have an unprecedented speech about the turbulent past twelve months. The timeline's pretty complicated this episode, but we basically jump back a year to see what happened. And we see a few intertwined stories unfold. Princess Margaret, played by Leslie Manville, picks out records to play at the BBC and gives an interview about what they mean to her, which happens to be overheard by Group, uh, Corp, group Captain Peter Townsend, played by Captain Dalton. Townsend for the win! Woo! Ultimately leading them to reunite and for her to ponder her history with him. Three of the Queen's four children come to talk with her about their marital problems, specifically Andrew, Anne, and then Charles. Her childhood home, Windsor Castle, goes up in flames, which feels as good a time as any for Margaret to come in and yell at her about how this family never learns anything. And we end the episode full circle with the queen preparing to give a speech against the advice of the queen mum, providing the tiniest peek into her interior life. She calls this year her Ennis Horribilis. And hey, that's the title of the episode. So as a crown watcher over the seasons and someone who's read the most, you know, about the Diana era. This was one of the two episodes I felt like the show absolutely needed to nail. And I wasn't sure how they were going to do it because the queen really did give the speech and so much terrible stuff happens in this year. I just didn't even know how they could pack it all in. Um, And I I just feel like all the things that the crown loves to do, like the heavy-handed metaphors, it's all sitting right there in real life. Like Windsor Castle really did burn in that year. And all of these divorces and separations really occurred. And there was so much scandal in the news, just sometimes even days apart. Um, But for me, (laughs) you know, I was pretty shocked, therefore, to see us start off with a whole bunch of Margaret. And I came to realize like that's a framing device and the speech itself is a framing device and we can, we can go through it, but there was both more and less than I was hoping for. What did you think? Well, you said, you, you said this a lot, like when we were watching it, uh, I think we watched it on the plane. 
um, when we have talked about it, you said the crown has to nail this episode. Why do you think the crown has to nail this episode? Like why, why is it so important? Is it just because it was such a consequential year and if they do it wrong, it's like cast doubt on the entire enterprise. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? It feels to me like, you know, not to say that everyone's, you know, uh, life is defined by its lowest moments, but that this is one of the absolute worst moments in somebody's life. Mm-hmm. You know, three of your children publicly have their marriages fail when your whole deal is the sanctity of marriage. Like that feels pretty bad. And they are kind of backed into it by scandal. That that feels rough. And your family home burns down. I mean, not down, but it burns. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, therefore, what I was expecting was much more of a drumbeat feeling leading up to this and that this would feel like the culmination of a bunch of stories. And it it does and it doesn't for me. Um, it's honestly, the 90s are just a horror show for the Windsors. And so I felt like I should be left with a feeling of devastation. Mm-hmm. And there have been times I felt real emotion during the show for the people in it who I have sometimes struggled in real life to feel a lot of empathy for, partly because they're not very accessible. Um, so it's like a real achievement of the show. And yet I don't think I quite felt that at the end of this episode. But you know, it's so there's so much ground to cover. Like maybe it wasn't possible to do in one episode. What, mm-hmm. what did you think? I thought episode four, Annis Horribilis, was fine. It wasn't I, – I think I had heard okay, yes. – I, I had heard – yes, it was episodus okayus. Uh, I, I had heard it was, as you said, one of the worst years of her life. And um, it's extremely rare for the queen to share her feelings about things and to share, I had a terrible year. I had a very bad year. Like, that's very rare for a queen to say. Uh, or, you know, or it, it was rare for this queen to say. And so, yes, I was looking forward to like, oh yeah, what what was going on there? Like, what what was going on behind the scenes? Um, I don't really feel like. Okay, let's take an example: uh, the burning down of Windsor Castle. Okay, many people saw that on the news, right? And you you see like the flames going up over the castle, and you, oh, devastation! Tons of rooms destroyed, and paintings, and blah blah blah. The opportunity that a show like The Crown offers the audience is, hey, what if we were actually there with the queen? What if we gave you access to the queen's interiority in a way that you don't get from the news? I didn't really get anything. Like, I didn't really, not really picking up anything that I couldn't have literally just imagined after thinking about it for like 20 minutes. You know what I'm saying? Like, or for like two seconds. Yes. Yeah. Big like, reaction oh, shot is she standing like she's in standing the there ashes. And she's, look, she's looking Philip at it and it's burning down. Her, and it's like, okay. okay they have that's, a hug. You know, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. That's that's it. So, so basically, this episode felt like uh, it was fine. It was not a bad episode, but it's just like this is like a Wikipedia entry of Ennis Horribilis, in my opinion. Um, and I think you see the creators of the show. You know, mostly Peter Morgan, who wrote every episode, but like you see the people behind the show trying to. Uh, inject some emotion into it. And I think that's why they put the Leslie Manville stuff. She is legitimately awesome in this episode. Um, and if that is the reason they put that in there, right? I think in my opinion is like, they needed to give this episode a more emotional core, which it doesn't have with just the queen. Um, but isn't that strange? Because I really thought that this year of all years, we would see 
Elizabeth and Philip as a unit reckon with the fallout of all their good intentions. And they're basically hardly in it together at all until the very end, which we can get to um, as we yeah, walk it, through the different The answer is threads. it is strange. It, this, this felt to me like I was speed running the Annus Horribilis and like, oh, bloop, 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 just dropping in on each one of these plot lines. Um, there was it, it didn't really feel like, oh, there's like a pacing in it, or there's a good pacing or inevitability to all these terrible things that are happening. You know, like it just felt like, oh, yep, we're, you know, a bunch of a bunch of kind of loosely connected uh, bad things happen. And that's it. That's kind of it. Um, so I thought the episode was fine. It wasn't terrible like the first episode. It wasn't great. It was fine. Um, yeah. So that's those are my thoughts. So there's a lot to unpack. Let's talk about these plot lines one at a time. There's Peter and Townsend and Margaret. There's what a Andrew. surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I was not did not see that coming. Um, there's Andrew, there's Anne, there's Charles and Diana, and there's Windsor Castle burning and the Queen giving a speech. So uh let's get into it, right, Joy? Yeah, and I, I I wrote Charles and Diana in our notes, but actually we never see Diana in this episode, I believe. We just see Charles whinging, as they say. Mm-hmm. What they mean is whining. Well, like I said, it's so surprised to see Peter Townsend. And I think the minute you sense that Peter Townsend might be coming back into the story, you do feel like, okay, I know what this is about. This is about like the um, prohibitions against marriage and what this family goes through to corral people and subject them to whatever feels like the right thing for the public eye and how much damage that can do over time and how we're seeing that play out one generation below them in the sort of Andrew and Charles storylines. Um, so for me, even though it's a little bit heavy handed and there's a little bit of, you know, um, moving about of the historical furniture, like this mostly works because Margaret has one of the most potent storylines for me in the early seasons of the show. And it's amazing how long of a shadow it casts over um, her own life and also feels like a cautionary tale for everyone around her. Um, I thought Timothy Dalton was really good as group captain Peter Townsend. What did you think of him? Yes, he's very charming, uh, very good looking dude. I mean, I think one of the things you had brought up to me when we first watched the show was that um, it's really kind of sketchy what Peter Townsend does because in real life he's like what a decade older than Margaret who's in her teens or whatever right I think he's maybe even more than that yeah, yeah. I think it might and be 15 years I think the word you used was that he was grooming her theoretically the show never presents it like that obviously it presents it as very romantic um but yeah Okay, I don't. This is probably like a distinction without a difference. Maybe I'll say he had grooming behaviors as opposed to having groomed her. But he did meet her when he was twenty nine and she was fourteen. I don't, I'm not saying they started dating at that time. Um, they became engaged when she was quite young, despite the fifteen year age difference. I believe they may have started seeing each other before I, they did before he was formally divorced, and then after he. Um, you know, realizes he can't marry her, he moves on to a young woman who's his assistant, who I think started working for him when she was 18. You know, so it's, it feels like there's an uncomfortable pattern. Yes. Yeah. But setting that aside and pretending that we're in the world of the crown, the depiction by Timothy Dalton, I thought he was like pretty charming and um, 
you know, he still has like the smolder for her. Um, and you can feel the decades of, that have passed um, feel both like weighty and like they haven't passed at all when they're sharing screen time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the idea of reconnecting with someone you haven't seen in decades uh, when you used to love each other and reckoning with what that relationship could have been, this like lost life that never was. It's a very potent idea. And I do think it's brought to life really well by these two actors in this episode. And, you know, again, as Liberty's taken by the crown go i don't think this one's too bad they did meet in the early 90s by accident at sort of an official event i don't think he heard her pick out records on the bbc and have it you know have send him down memory lane that he wrote to her but um they had a little uh party i don't think they hung out privately um at kensington palace um like a little lunch party later um so they did see each other that couple times and then he did pass away a few years later so uh, you could easily see that that would actually make someone revisit old times or go through their letters or you know all of the stuff that brings all the pain to the forefront for margaret in this episode yeah Yeah. totally um well speaking of verisimilitude uh like are do you have any other thoughts about how accurate this episode was in its depiction of margaret and uh i'm just a little puzzled because i they flash back a number of times to vanessa kirby i don't know if you recall like it's um they skip over the helena bonham carter um, depiction, but both of those felt very continuous to me, like a person who has so much joie de vivre, but it's spiraling a little out of control in their lives. And Leslie Manville just seems so much more restrained and almost at times, I wouldn't say prim, she seems haughty. Um, and that feels true to the prior depictions, but she really feels like a different ish person. So even when they show her partying in this episode and singing, you know, at the piano, it doesn't ring it, – it feels like a muted and sadder version of um, the Vanessa Kirby depiction, like that we just got that, – that time has basically subdued her. That's the only way that I can read that and try yeah. to believe it to be continuous. And I feel a little bit sad about that because I wish – I think seeing like, let's just imagine Helena Bonham Carter had continued seeing her and, you know, Timothy Dalton reconnect. Like, I just feel like it it should have been even more electric than what we got. And I wish, you know, we had seen that version of, you know, with Vanessa Kirby's like intensity or Helena Bonham Carter's subdued rage, you know, like really come through in the end would have been preferable to me. In the final scene with the queen. Yeah, I, I know. You know, I think you have you have had a lot of issues with this continuity with the Margaret character. I have way fewer of those issues. I agree with you. It's very different than Helena Bonham Carter and Vanessa Kirby. Vanessa Kirby, but like Leslie Manville's pure acting talent is so high that when she gives that speech to the queen at this episode, uh, it, in my opinion, she completely knocked it out of the park. It's like, oh, this like completely justifies why they got Leslie Manville, in my opinion. You said it would have been more powerful coming out of Helena Bottom Carter. I agree with you, but I still think what we got out of Leslie Manville was incredible this episode. So I have far fewer complaints than you do about this this depiction. Um, and I thought it was good. I thought it was good. So any other thoughts on the Margaret uh, Peter Townsend storyline? Not for now. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about Andrew and uh, let's talk about Prince Andrew's plotline. What's going on here? Not enough. Not enough. So I was really excited for the 90s because I thought we would meet Fergie. And 
you know, Fergie we ha- is Sarah Ferguson, who is Andrew's wife. So we we witnessed their wedding day without actually seeing their wedding in season four. We basically have seen Sarah Ferguson from a distance. Um, like I think she didn't even get any lines of dialogue maybe in the show so far. And then we in this you know episode we see photos of her along a mantle with Andrew's children as he's like getting dressed. But you really, I don't know why they chose literally no Fergie. And I just, (sighs) Sarah Ferguson was such a staple of the 90s tabloids and in some ways is such a victim of what befalls anyone who isn't um, perfectly sainted by the tabloids particularly women. Um, I really felt like it was an important part of the 90s story of the royals, but it's a really strange um, shorthand that we get. You know, So we know only a little bit about Andrew, and we only know a little bit about Fergie. And then what we do know about Andrew is also a little uncomfortable because in real life, we all know what has happened with Andrew is that he's had all his royal titles stripped and he's basically been kicked out as a ro- working royal because of his association with Jeffrey Epstein and the civil suit brought against him by Virginia Joffrey, who is um, accused uh, Jeffrey Epstein of sex trafficking and, and Gillen Maxwell as well. So it's like pretty horrifying and really ugly, everything about Andrew in real life. And I, I felt like there was a way for them to lead a more somber track that would, you know, again, the horrors of the 90s lead to the horrors of the 2000s lead to the horrors of today. Um, and it it felt like they were trying to kind of do a little end dance around it. Um, yeah, I mean – we did a preview episode where you predicted like where is season five going to go, and you had some great predictions around you know some of the stuff you predicted around the journalistic establishment um, is going to come true later on the season. Um, but I think you were also really looking to Fergie, looking forward to Fergie, and that obviously has not come to pass at all. Not even close. Not even close to coming to pass. So, well, even um, within the contained world of the show, here's a question for you: We know this. This family hates divorce. You know, they'll do anything to avoid a divorce. So did you find it believable in just the information you were given that Andrew was granted a divorce after only like we just saw him get married at the end of the prior season? I think what is what is lacking in the show is. You know, in in this episode later on, we're going to talk about um, Princess Anne. She divorces her husband and she's trying to marry this other guy, right? Like that she met and you know, a couple episodes ago. Um, and then the queen's like, Nope, you can't do it. And she's like, well, I'm going to, and I do what I want, you know? And then like, that's it. And then it's like, okay, so, uh, she can just, yeah, do what that? was like, all that with Margaret then? What, what, yeah. What, why didn't Margaret just do that? You know, like, um, so the, my interpretation is, um, well, things have just changed and now people can just do things, but the show never, clarifies that in any way like i should because they so many episodes in season one and two were burned on like margaret can't have sex with who she wants because of blah blah blah. and it's just like dude like what happened what 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 is the change you know there needed to be something where it's like well in an earlier era we wouldn't have allowed this but now we're going to because blah the monarchy is strong enough she's been queen for 
you know, 30 years now or what, you know, like whatever, like there needed to be some more explanation in my opinion of what exactly the dynamic is. Um, that is what I think was lacking in the show. Not, not yeah. can, yeah, not can he get divorced or whatever. It's more like, what is the crown's opinion on divorce? Like, how does the crown handle divorce? Is it, they prefer it not happen? Are the rules different for Charles than everyone else? Cause it certainly seems like they are. You know, like, what is going on here? Um, and Margaret sh- even asks this question directly. She's like, how is Anne's situation any different than mine back then? Why is Anne being allowed to do these things? And the queen says, it's different. And Margaret says, it's not. And then they just never square the circle. And, and we'll I never I know speak the, of it again. <laughs> I know the answer, but I think the show does a terrible job of explaining it. What is the answer? Oh, um, this is complicated. Okay, so... The or should we get of, into this? Should we get into this later? Or let's get or, into it when we talk about Anne. That's okay, going to be cool. the easiest. Okay, that sounds good. Well, so let's wrap up the Andrew slash non Fergie storyline. Any anything else you want to say about this? Yeah. Okay. So this is going to take a minute, you know, but bear with me. I think it's worth it. The Annus Horribilis leaves out a lot of Horribilis that happened in the year. So this episode. Is the not really the episode leaves out leaves a lot, out a lot actual, of real yeah, okay. badness um, in the year. So, for one thing, the Andrew Morton book, which we've already seen come out, actually happens in this summer that we're covering mm, yeah. right now. Another thing is Anne had already gotten divorced earlier in the year. So, you know, when she swans in, she's saying, "I want to remarry." Um, so that one's already fait accompli. Andrew and Fergie. What is really missed for me um, is that um, by alighting all the scandals that Fergie was in. So Fergie had already been caught in a cheating scandal, basically. And that is what led to Andrew and Fergie already being separated at the time that these new you know, photos come out from Saint-Tropez. Um, is that Fergie and Diana were actually extremely good friends. When before she Fergie married into the family, it was meant actually to be this. And you could imagine the depiction we saw of Diana in last season, just like roller skating alone through these endless hallways, like how lonely she is, um, like dancing, literally spinning in circles, um, how much fun it would have been for her to have a friend her age, you know. But what starts to happen in real, real life is that the tabloids pit them against each other to an extent because one is sort of flawless and one is viewed as fat and frumpy. She's not fat by any um, real like sane standard of that word. But um, I think that, you know, the there's pressure on the two of them and it sort of helps Diana that there's a competition within the family because Fergie is more popular with the queen and with others inside the family, but she's less popular in the press. And I thought there was a great sort of um, story to be told about how women get pitted against each other in the public media and how this impacts their actual lives. Mm-hmm. So, but they already um, made it. It's called House of the Dragon, Joy. That was mostly a misunderstanding, as far as I can tell, because mm-hmm. Viserys didn't specify which Aegon he was talking about. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, so, you know... Setting aside all these great things we could have seen, Diana and Fergie stealing bicycles and running around in circles, them like pulling pranks and dressing up in costumes and breaking into people's parties, like all this great, like fun stuff happened between them. Their friendship dies um, in the summer of 1992 during the Annus Horribilis. And the really like 
tough accusation is that Diana is the person who leaked to the press that Fergie was going to Saint-Tropez because only a couple people knew about that. And Fergie believes it was Diana who did it. And she thinks Diana did it to deflect attention away from her own problems. What were her own problems, Joy? Thank you for asking. Um, So (laughs) her own problem, which was pretty large, is that prior to the Camilla Gate tapes, which we're going to get into in the next like episode, or the Camilla Gate tape, um, Diana had her own phone call leaked to the press in the summer of 92, and it was called Squidgy Gate because her lover refers to her as Squidgy. Um, That's his nickname for her. And it is like in its own way kind of as mortifying as what Charles and Camilla are taped saying. And it's similarly like an incidental, who knows how anyone got this recording thing that's like leaked to the press. Um, So, you know, just like with Camilla Gate, it's really mortifying. And she's really hoping to deflect from herself. So Tina Brown, basically, uh, who is an author of books like the Diana Chronicles, um, thinks that Diana did leak it. She basically told the press where to go to find Fergie. And so those photos come out three days before the Squidgy Gate tapes get the transcripts get published. And it's it, it works because Fergie looks so bad and the toe sucking is so sensational that like the paper that prints it sells out and makes another 400,000 copies the next day that also, I mean, it's just like all anybody can talk about. And so Diana's thing is like, oh, you know, the Morton book came back, came out already. We knew she was unhappy. It, it kind of just gets lost in the shuffle. So. Wow. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Did you know any of that? No, I didn't. Yeah. I do think this is a good object lesson though, because I did say to you in our preview episode, you're like, oh, you had all these dreams of here are the things that might be covered. And I was like, Joy, don't get too excited because the show has shown it's just going to cover whatever the heck it wants. No matter how major it is, it may skip over it. And uh, I think that's a good lesson for next season, too. Like, who knows what's going to yeah. be Yeah. So. Well, I'll say just another, you know, little missed opportunity. The way this is presented in the show is that Andrew goes to the queen and says, oh, I need to have a divorce. And it's kind of played for laughs. It's really like in poor taste, I think, the way that it's it's done. But in reality, Fergie was at Balmoral for the summer holiday with the queen when this thing comes out in the paper. And so the queen summons Fergie and, you know, is pretty unhappy with her and it becomes clear in that conversation she's gonna she's not gonna be able to be a working royal anymore so she's gonna go from separated to divorced in some you know in some time frame and that is uh you know pretty rough for Fergie she doesn't have a lot to fall back on and that's how she ends up marketing Weight Watchers in America indeed so uh rough time for everyone involved but yeah it does feel like they elided a massive Part of the story there. Um, I mean, the fact that you're saying that, by the way, you know, reinforces something that I think we all believe about this season, which is season four of The Crown was absolutely vicious against Charles, in my opinion. And season five is basically the Charles Rehabilitation Tour. It is baffling the extent to which it is the Charles Rehabilitation Tour, given the context from season four. Um, And do you think they're like soft on Andrew because they're also soft on charles is that what you're saying uh well i i think the stuff you said about diana is like really mortifying you know like it, 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 both the the squidgy gate and leaking the saint tropez stuff like 
that's all terrible about Diana, you know, like, um, yeah, it's one of the ugliest things that is rumored about Diana or I don't yeah. know rumored, but like believed by some people to be true. And, and the season is like fairly negative about Diana in, in a lot of ways, but, um, but I guess like, you know, in, instead of that, we got, uh, Charles breakdancing. <laughs> basically. <laughs> well, we'll so. get to that next episode. But I did want to ask you, like the accusations against Andrew are so serious um, in real life. How did you feel about the portrayal of him having, you know, tea with his mom and joking about the toe sucking? I thought it was fine. I thought it was very funny, you know, but yeah, this is obviously before any of the horrible things happen. So, um, and as far as we know, you know, I've watched the doc, the Andrew documentary on Peacock. And like, as far as we know, he wasn't involved with anything that terrible at this point in time. So, yeah, you know. but I feel like they nod to it. Like he says, I mean, I've put my foot in people. I've been accused of putting my foot in people's or my foot in my mouth, but not in anyone else's. Like it's a. I think you're. I think you're reaching for. I don't know. All maybe right. other people saw it and they're like, "Wow, I, you just don't want to think about Andrew in any sexual context." It sounds like, <laughs> which is that's that's completely yeah. And fine. Andrew yeah. basically gave an. I mean, these maybe Charles gives a terrible interview or Diana gives a terrible interview, but Andrew gives an interview in which he basically lights himself on fire. In, oh yeah, you know, yeah. It's it's one of the most years spectacular self immolations ever. Um, but anyway, I didn't I didn't mind it. Okay, I thought it was all right. I thought it was funny. So. So should All we right. move well, that's Anne? the Andrew Fergie storyline, but Andrew is getting divorced because his wife is seen with her foot in someone else's mouth um, in photos, right? Is that's the, It wasn't the other way around. It was her foot in someone else's mouth. Yeah, I think that's right. It is her foot in someone else's mouth, and she's topless in some of the photos, and her very young, very young children, who are like only a couple years old, are like frolicking next to this. It's bad. We go to Anne. Anne gets relatively screen time in this episode. She basically comes in and says she wants to marry this guy, Tim, who she briefly saw from the Lifehouse earlier in the season opener. Um, it's revealed in this scene that the ink is barely dry on her divorce. And we're reminded that the Church of England allows divorce, but not remarriage. As long as the other person's still alive, as far as I can tell, right? Yes, it's um, complicated. <laughs> marriage draws, a, I'm sorry, Margaret draws a parallel to Anne later and says, how can these possibly be different circumstances. Why is Anne permitted to marry? Okay, so uh, I'm ready again. to answer this now. Um, the Church of England didn't allow divorce for some period of time. And when they loosened the restriction on that, they said, well, here's the like technicality. You can divorce the person, but you can't remarry as long as they're alive because your marriage lasts the duration of their lifetime. Let me just pause there and say that that does feel to me like it would motivate a lot of mar like ex-marriage or ex-spouse killings. You know, it's like, oh, my ex-wife accidentally fell down some stairs. Oh, hey, wow, that means I can marry my uh, girlfriend? Wow, that's wow, that's amazing. Like It is so funny you say that because it is a motivating factor in so many Agatha Christie mysteries mm -hmm. that I've read. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Where it turns out someone has a secret wife who was, you know, perhaps in a hospital and has never gotten better and, you know, no path forward but to kill that person. Um, so you can divorce but not remarry as long – this happened – this kept going until I think 2005. 
uh, which I believe is the year that Charles and Camilla then finally get married because this is now kind of allowed. Um, but Anne skirts this by saying, well, that's the Church of England, but England is not Scotland. So I'm going to go over the border and I'm going to get married there. So she gets married in Balmoral, which is, you know, on the Scottish coast. Um, it's it's up in Scotland. I may, I think it's on the coast. I should double check that. But suffice it to say that this feels really by the skin of your teeth. Like, is this – it's honoring the letter of the law, but probably not the spirit of the law for the Church of England. And her mom does attend the wedding, so it does feel kind of sanctioned. Well, I can see why they didn't bother explaining that in the show, but the problem with I, – I don't know. I guess the show has dived into these technicalities like – in the past, you know, in season one, they were like, um, yeah, actually, you can't, she can't, you can't announce the same thing on the, the same day as she's announcing a thing. You know, it's like they would d- dive into these technicalities and it's weird to me that they didn't do anything to explain. Yeah, this and they often explain things for an American audience like um, it, it feels like to me at least. And it's well known. It's really common that you if you're in England or you're in Wales, you know, the legal marriage age might be 21, but you're a little younger than that. Or um, if you want to be able to get married without a waiting period or certain other restrictions, people go over the Scottish border to this little town called Gretna Green. And it's like a shorthand for like, you know, we got married, we ran away and eloped, basically. So like, in Downton Abbey, they talk about going to Gretna Green when Lady Sybil wants to marry the hot socialist chauffeur. Um, and uh, I think they get married in a more formal way than that. But, you know, suffice it to say that this would be like a really commonly understood thing in the UK that you can go to Scotland to get around this. Got it. All right. Well, that solves that mystery. I think uh, at and- the end when Margaret is upset, though, what she's upset about is she, maybe she had that option available to her. Right. I remember it being discussed like, like she could give up all her titles or, you know, whatever. But Anne but- doesn't have to give up her titles. She doesn't have mm. to give up her perks. She doesn't have to give up her castle or her income, you know, and she doesn't have to stop being a working royal. And that does feel like a double standard. It's uh, But it's less of an impactful speech when she can say um, – it's the same situation, except in this case, she didn't have to give up her titles. It kind of blunts the impact of that speech a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, from a fact check perspective, this was all pretty much true. So check the box. Well, that is the uh, Anne storyline in this episode of The Crown. You know what would have made these people's lives a lot better? Joy, I'm going to put this out there. Uh, a sense of community, you know, uh, a sense of communication between the folks. Uh, perhaps some delicious food bonding over it, you know, I think would have also helped. And that's why I'm extremely proud to say that this episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. It's no surprise that here on Decoding TV, we absolutely love the idea of community. Uh, we fostered a community here on Decoding TV of TV lovers and, uh, I'm really excited to partner with McDonald's because they truly care about fostering a sense of community as well. And one of the biggest ways they do that is uh, through their incredible crew members who work hard to truly make you feel like you're right at home when you stop into a McDonald's. Uh, And of course, we go to McDonald's pretty regularly here. Love using the app. And um, I think we're always impressed by how efficient it is. You stop in, you get greeted with uh, a friendly greeting at the drive-thru and uh, people are always quick and efficient, and the food comes, and it's really delicious. And that is because of the crew members at McDonald's. I've been waiting to drop this McDonald's Diana bomb on you. 
Okay. She would take her kids to McDonald's every Saturday. What? Which I think is very sweet. I mean, I think they were she was just trying to give them some version of a normal childhood. And so Amazing. Yeah. Um McDonald's serving the Windsors <laughs> since 1984 or whenever William Indeed. was born. Well, a huge thank you to McDonald's crew members everywhere uh for making our visits to McDonald's even more special. McDonald's, I'm loving it. All right, Joy, let's get to the rest of the plot lines this episode. Uh, Charles visits his mother in the stables and begs for a separation. Feels pretty repetitive to past arguments he's made, but this time he says it's not just incompatibility or infidelity. It's the sheer vindictiveness of the Morton book. The queen at that point reminds him that being happily married is a preference, not a requirement. Queen, by the way, been super understanding of Charles's problems through the last few years of his life. Um, and I'm being sarcastic. She has been brutal in her response. She has been not understanding at all. So, And when he does say, like, how come other people are allowed to divorce? She says the difference is that you're the king. So or you're the future king um, and the future head of the Church of England rather directly, yes. um, which leads to I feel like the most helpful framing that's been in this show in which he says, OK, that's a vow you made, but you also made this vow to protect the crown. And I think Diana might actually take down the crown if she is like allowed to keep going, which is, you know, a fair point. Yeah. And one I'm sure that was made. Yeah. So, so um, yeah. well, I, I was just going to say, like, um, it's an odd moment in the show because he brings up the vindictiveness of the Morton book, and that's fair. And in reality, this is all very raw. It's only been a couple months since it came out. People are still digesting that that even happened, a tell-all royal memoir. And then, you know, but in the show time, it, we've had Moo, we've had Sidney Johnson, we've had a whole bunch of stuff happen since we last thought about the Andrew Morton book. So it's kind of an odd um sensation but i think this is another piece that felt a little bit missing to me about like the pressure that the annas horribilis should have felt just like body blow after body blow mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right anything else you want to say about that or shall we get to the final plot line well i don't know if you want to talk about it here maybe we could talk about it in the next episode but how dominic west is doing as charles um, yeah, we can talk about it here if you want. It's up to, why don't we save it for next episode? Because we've been going for like 40 minutes on this one episode. So um, we'll save well, it for know, next episode. Yeah, I feel like they keep positioning Charles as someone who wants to modernize the monarchy, which would conveniently also allow his divorce. And it's a very, very odd little interaction um, for me because it doesn't really feel like it advances the plot that much and he says some really mean things to the queen like if like social services came they would have us all sent to care which means like foster care yeah i don't um, think he said that <laughs> we end this episode with scenes of the queen she reflects with the archbishop of canterbury on how badly things are going with her children and she then finds out that her family seat windsor castle is literally on fire she goes to the ruins Philip finally shows up and they have a little hug. She watches news footage of the fire. Margaret bursts in to yell at her about how almost, how almost everyone in the family might want to burn the whole thing down. Then she has a wee fight with the queen mum about how candid to be in her speech that weekend. Elizabeth wants to say how she feels, namely lousy, and she suggests actually apologizing um, for what it's not clear. The queen mum says, do not do that. And Philip barges in to defend Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth's right to say whatever she wants. He says everyone else's job is to support her. Uh, now. This is a little bit weird because uh, there is a scene in the episode where uh, 
he says, like, she should say whatever she wants. She's done more than anyone to support God and blah, blah, blah. And then the queen mum says, you know, since when are you defending her? And the queen says, since day one, since day one. And I'm like, I Did don't we know the if for the last four I, seasons I, I don't i don't know if it was since day certainly there were many days that that happened but since day one i don't that's a little bit of an exaggeration and i'm alluding to of course the fact that philip and um queen elizabeth had many disagreements about how much fealty he should pay to her whether he should literally bend the knee to her like all these things um and complained greatly about the cost to his freedom that this marriage cost him you know so it's like Oh, in fact, we're going to see it in two episodes from now. So it's very strange. Like it's I, very, I, it's very strange. Yeah, it's it just it, we talked last podcast episode about how Philip seems to have been reinvented this episode, like this season, and this continue, like this character is not only unrecognizable physically, but just like as a personality, um, completely different than anything that's come before. So, yeah, I was frustrated. I I felt like it was meant to be a. You know, Margaret has as part of her speech, like how many times has Philip like done something you needed, defended you when you needed, et cetera. Um, and I think he could have defended her without the weird revisionist history that he spews. Indeed. And that, and that Elizabeth does too. So the queen gives a speech and then, you know, the episode kind of ends and it's like, okay, wow, she's going through some hard times. That's kind of my reaction was, oh. Yeah, she's going through some tough times. You know, yeah, like but I she think she ends it with a phone call to Margaret in which they say, I love you to each other. Yeah, which uh feels extremely out of character for the both of them. Like it doesn't feel like a conversation they ever would have had um in this way. And, and is that the way we're gonna end the Annas Horribilis, which isn't even over? Because like the separation of Charles and Diana occurs like a week later and we see that in the next episode. I don't know. I was left uh quite befuddled. As the Windsors might say, what? <laughs> do you like it when I do the British accent? Is it good? No, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> so any other comments about this episode? <laughs> and any uh, any other things you want to fact check in episode four? Um, I mean, I think the biggest thing people should be aware of is that often speeches and public statements are the only time we have a record of what the royals are putting out there as direct verbatim statements because they're very rarely like quoted or you know followed around with cameras um like super interestingly the queen in her entire reign never gave one single interview um which is just really mind-blowing to ponder um she gave one filmed interaction but she said it couldn't be an interview and i've watched it it's really like insight free um so you can also understand given that context you can understand why she'd be so upset at diana kind of spewing oh, all just their blasting it all yeah, over the just place just blasting everywhere For like all sure. their dirty laundry you know yeah um so although it takes she a lot did, of discipline to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the queen did give this speech and some of the statements in it are close to or verbatim or close to verbatim, but I've read the whole speech. It's not very long. She definitely did not say institutions must evolve. And, you know, in order to like move forward, we have to admit the errors of the past in order to have hope of reconciliation, which is clearly meant to be like a comment about her children's divorces in the context of the show. And she definitely doesn't say anything about sun and water, which is like a reference to like what Margaret was saying she needed from group captain peter townsend um so i just find that like an odd liberty to take that was unnecessary um so just fyi for people who like 
knowing exactly what was real and what wasn't. Um, and then, you know, the other thought I have is it's just so odd that we spend so much screen time with the queen, but we don't have any insight into how – I don't feel like we have any insight into how she's really feeling other than rather down. Um, I really was hoping that speech – that scene with the Archbishop of Canterbury – would be like when Philip, you know, has his completely imagined sort of like faith reckoning because the NASA guys went to the moon, you know, like he, we got so much interiority with Philip's character at that time. And if they were going to make something up whole cloth, you know, like at least that would have been something to ponder. Um, But instead we just got like a lot of nothing. And so it was very, very strange to me um, because I, what she the way she reacts is you know certainly she's not happy but it's so subdued that i'm like left to believe that she's not even much of a presence within her own family or behind closed doors and i mm-hmm. i just don't know if i guess that's one thesis you could have but it's not very satisfying nor nor does it really fit in with the first two se- or first four seasons of the show i would argue you know right right so. i was thinking about like when she has to tell margaret that she has to go back on her word. This is, I think, season one, that she had said, sure, you can marry group captain Peter Townsend. And then she has to take it back. And then she has to say, like, okay, it's got to be a couple years. And then they they suffer through those years. And then they're like, we're ready to get married. And then she has to tell her sister, actually, <laughs> it was kept from me, but you cannot marry even though you've gone through all of this suffering. Like, you can really feel for Claire Foy and for Margaret how terrible this is. I felt so much empathy for both of those characters. And so I was surprised that the Annis Horribilis for me landed less intensely than even that. It barely landed at all for me. You know, like it just was like, okay, yeah, some some bad things happened and that was it, you know? So it didn't feel that much worse than most of the other stuff that happens on the show. Um, so anyway. Yeah, I, mean, I think the way season... you described it as sort of like a checklist via Wikipedia, that is exactly, exactly right. This is a season that opens with a mass murder, you know? So it's like, okay, um, <laughs> compared to that, these people's problems are nothing. All right, shall we wrap? Mass we... murder? What are you talking about? A patty of house, you know? Like... Oh, a, a different episode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, anything else uh, you want to say about episode five or four, four before we get to episode five? <sighs> I mean, I I have a hypothesis, which is that season five is just worse. It's just worse. Yeah. I I don't know why it's worse, but like, here's an example. Peter and Margaret, after they get together at the ball, take a little stroll through the gardens together. And she's telling him about how everything, how much of Windsor Castle burned, which was a lot. And she's saying, this room didn't survive. And he's like, is this painting still there? You know, they're going through things. And then he says... What about the Crimson Room? And so then they have a little walk down memory lane about how they had sat in the Crimson Room and planned their futures together and, you know, how everything had been so much better at that moment and how they were so filled with optimism. And Margaret could have said just the Crimson Room did not survive, you know, and I think we would have gotten, we would have gotten it. We would have clocked it and maybe it would have had some impact. But instead, she says, like those plans, I'm afraid the Crimson Room did not survive. And that is just really heavy handed writing. And I really think the problem is at the writing level more than anything else this season. And I don't think the Annus Horribilis needed a heavy hand. I think it needed a lighter touch. Mm hmm. 
All right. But who well, am I are... other than a woman wearing Diana Tribute sweatshirts? Indeed. Well, those are our thoughts on episode four, Annis Horribilis. Let's get to episode five, titled The Way Ahead. It's Christmas, 1989. We're going back in time to go forward. Charles is chafing about his role at a private house party, then cuts the evening off to call Camilla, which interrupts her family evening too. It quickly becomes clear that this call is being taped, and most of the episode deals with the fallout from uh, what was then titled Camilla Gate, which unfolds over the course of three years. We also see Charles and Diana finally get separated, but stating that they have no plans to divorce. Charles decides after Camilla Gate to rehab his image by having his own biography written, and a TV special airs, which goes rather badly. We see Diana wear what is now known as the revenge dress. Then we start, uh, we see the start of what is described as a rival court for Charles. And we see that Charles is actually a great leader with lots of good ideas that are much more modern and egalitarian than his family. It seems the humiliation and terrible marriage are actually assets that have made him stronger and able to relate to people. This show is very responsibly depicting how great the monarchy is, and especially Charles and Camilla, who are now the king and queen of England. What do you think of this episode, Joy? I am of two minds about this episode. I mean, I actually think the way Camilla Gate is so infamous in the UK and any, for any royal observers. Um, apparently, Josh O'Connor, when he was cast as Charles, said, I will do the role, but I absolutely will not do Camilla Gate. And it was, it, I don't think it figured into how things, he just wanted nothing to do with that sort of scene and that depiction. Um, and yet, so I, I think they did a good job of, they don't show the entirety of the conversation at the beginning. They yeah. break it out into pieces throughout. So you're able to kind of follow one storyline and then see how it impacts different people over time. And I thought this was a great way to sort of slow things down and narrow them in order to tell a bigger story. So this was really effective for me. And I don't understand who Prince Charles is, the character. He's been like parachuted in from a different play at a neighboring theater. Like I really don't know what's going on in the show at this point how so how so well i mean as you started to say it feels like pretty hagiographic um you know the uh there are a number of times i think that the depiction of the stuff in this episode goes pretty easy on him um and dominic west who plays charles and peter morgan have both been quoted as saying that these events have really given them a lot of sympathy for charles and i think that comes across um a lot of charles worse i i found charles incredibly compelling as a character in season four because even though it's harsh on him i think it shows both his positives and his negatives just like the philip depictions have shown a real human who you could recognize who is both awesome and terrible at the same time yeah um and yet you really believe that Charles becomes that version of himself because of who Philip is and how Philip treats him and how Mark, mm-hmm. and how his mom treats him. And so the idea that there's this new person who has none of those characteristics is very strange, you know, and they are going to highlight a handful of the things that are definitely true about him, but they don't feel like the most relevant things about him. Um, and so the kind of overall picture I get of Charles from this is he is a man who just happened to fall in love with the wrong woman and he has been so constant and devoted to her and he was set up to fail with Diana, which I mean, that's not like all totally untrue um, and that he just has all these ideas and he's just so interested in giving back to the youths and he is so um, 
you know, prepared for a multicultural society and it, whatever, he should be king already. Like that is like the thesis I feel like of this um, is that the tapes were embarrassing, but they're actually mostly a terrible invasion of privacy for them um, to people who were really in love. Uh, agreed completely. I think if you asked the royal family to commission a one-hour episode about the Camillagate tapes, it would be indistinguishable from this episode. <laughs> like, if you asked them to actually make it themselves, it would be indistinguishable. It is. It basically takes the softest, softest stance possible in terms of Charles's uh, blameworthiness in this situation. Yeah, um, and they bundle it with this other moment that's quite famous in which there's sort of a little documentary made in which he's interviewed, um, and it's like a two-and-a-half-hour show. Um, and only one thing people remembered from it, uh, it was not about you know his ideas about faith or whatever else. Um, it did not go over well, but it's depicted as being like not that bad. Um, and I think it was actually – it went over really not great because all anyone talked about was the fact that he admitted he had an affair. The opening of this episode, I thought was the crown at its best. Um, there were so many amazing touches. You're, you're airdropped into this family gathering. You're like, what, what is going on here? Um, there's well, incredible- it, Charles at his dinner first. And then yes. the parallel dinner at the Camilla, Camilla Parker Bowles, house. Yeah. Charles is just being a freaking mopey, a gloomy Gus. Um, there is an amazing shot. I, I think it's chilling when like, you know, one of the children says like, mommy, it's your turn or something like that. And then like Camilla doesn't even respond. Like she just walks away and you get a sense of like, oh, like I see like this entire family has reconfigured itself around Charles's presence, basically, um, to possibly great damaging effect for everyone involved. Right. Um, especially Camilla's husband. And, that, and that's, a very chill, that's a very chilling moment. Then they have the conversation, uh, and then it's like the the camera pulls out, and you go across the land to someone listening, and then it goes to like um, to the newspaper, and and it's like wow, like you that's this is what the crown does at its best that no other show can do. It shows you like how all these different stories and places and people are interconnected because of the crown, um, because of the institution, and like that is the crown at its best. And I'm like, oh, this is so good. And then it's like, well, you know, you guys were so in love, and that's why you said all those filthy things. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. You know, so this is this is kind of humanizing him. But then when they tried to show Charles breakdancing as anything other than a complete embarrassment, um, it's like, oh, I see. This is the Charles rehabilitation tour. Can, can we please talk at this point about Dominic West as Charles? Because there is sure. a fundamental problem. I have seen that footage of Charles breakdancing. That's a real yes. thing they recreated. Please feel free to look it up. He is so awkward. It is so uncomfortable. Like he is not dressed for it. He cannot pretend to be, you know, um, uh, comfortable with his own body enough to be doing these moves. He sort of goes for it, which I do give him credit for, but it is pretty painful to watch. But Dominic West is too hot. He is too hot to be Charles. He is un. He is incapable of mimicking that level of physical um, awkwardness. And I think that throughout the season, because he cannot, or maybe he chose not to have a depiction that was as preening and self-pitying and 
fully brooding. Um, he just seems sort of like a muted hot guy who's 50. And Josh O'Connor's depiction is just like completely, you know, washed out to sea. Like I, I can't provide any connective tissue between the two. Um, mm-hmm. And so even when they give him lines that are a little bit self-pitying or he tries to do Charles's voice, like it, it just doesn't even um, sound like certainly not the same person, but also it doesn't even feel like a good fit for Dominic West as an actor. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. agree with that? I'm not bothered by it. You know, I've seen a lot of people, not just you, but a lot of people being like, Dominic West is too hot. I have a horrible secret to confess. I have never felt Dominic West is that attractive. I'm just going to put not that Not even as McNulty? He's cool. I like it. He's a cool dude, but I just don't, you know, people are like, he's too hot to be Charles. I'm like, I've never, and it, by the way, it's not that I don't think guys, there are guys that are attractive. You know, I think there's many men who I think are very hot, like, but Dominic West is not one of them. And so that's just kind of my thing. But I think you are right that like Dominic West is too cool for the, putting aside the looks, he's too cool for this role. Okay, fair, and, fair. I actually don't think he's like classically pretty. I think it's more that he has a vibe of like, hey, I'm a guy who like, well, you'll have a good time with innately, mm-hmm. you know, and I just don't sure. think... You know, let me let me pause there. We can stop. I don't need to go on and on about McNulty's hotness, but that's fair enough. It has um, been asserted by me. All right. Um, so anyway, we, weird episode, but 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 there's there's some great there's there's so many great things about this episode. Like the the scene where like everyone's reading the newspaper, I thought was like really amazing. It was just like great stuff. That's classic Crown stuff. So, but then it like ends on a very positive note for Charles, and it's like. Really? That was where this was all going after like all the horrible things we saw last season? Like that's where this is ending? It feels very out of step with what happened last season and reality. Um, they're, they are c- kind of um, framed as like star-crossed lovers, you know, that, you know, it's tragic that they couldn't be together and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, yeah. It's like peak one true love. Um storyline you know the thing i object to is the idea that they um were just kept apart by the institution and weren't like people who had agency and made really in some cases very damaging choices that they have not really atoned for um so so what else uh in episode five of the crown season i'm sorry in season five episode five of the crown anything else that you want to talk with uh talk about in terms of the verisimilitude and what well, was accurate and what wasn't accurate yes so the title of the episode is The Way Ahead. And this is a reference to the Way Ahead group, which is like a little committee that is chaired by Philip. And we see it meeting a couple of times. So I believe this thing, it was secretive, but it went on like twice a year for quite some time. In the in 1992, the Annus Horribilis, the royal family really is at quite a low point and very worried that all of these scandals will drive them from existence. Um, as a publicly funded and loved institution. And so they do create this little group um, that did a bunch of things that are quite important. And it doesn't get acknowledged fully in this, um, you know, season of television. But um, for a long time, none of the royals paid taxes, like income tax. So that was another way in which they were subsidized by the state. So they started voluntarily paying taxes in 1994. Um, the civil list, which is like the list of people who get like a payout from the state, um, 
they shrunk it dramatically because these are very wealthy people. And, you know, the argument was like, why do we need to make you wealthier? Um, and another big question was who was going to pay for the repairs to Windsor Castle after the fire? Because that is not exact. So Buckingham Palace belongs to the public, right. but the Windsor Castle and some of the other castles are private. So it ends up being that the queen ponies up a couple million pounds herself, and then it, it costs way more than that. They decided to open Buckingham Palace as a museum in the summers when they're not there anyway and charge admission for it. And then uh, use Buckingham that. or Balmoral? Buckingham Palace. Yeah, I gotcha. Okay. Balmoral um, is likely to get turned into a museum for the queen um, in the future. That's a thing I think Charles is looking to do. So um, by charging tickets, you know, they can, they're trying to like make it a little bit less like feeling like they're just a, uh, like an anchor on the like dragging yeah. down the British economy. Yes. Um, and so I think those are like reasonable things um, yeah. that, uh, you know, little reforms. Um, they do also talk about why do we have uh, only male heirs who are allowed to inherit? That's an idea that's floated by Charles in this meeting. I don't know that. I don't know one way or the other, if Charles is like really the source of this idea. And it takes another like 15, 20 years, but they actually do eventually pass that. So right now the second in line to the throne is um, the middle child for uh, Kate or after Kate and after William, it's his um, son and then his daughter. Got it. Um, and in terms of the Camilla Gate stuff in season five, episode five, like any other things uh, about that whole topic in real life that differed or were the same as what was in the show? Unfortunately for everyone, the transcript is freely available. The six minute recording, I don't know if I've heard it, but I think it can be heard without a ton of difficulty. Um, and, you know, in the show, they depict it as like an almost immediate catch and kill for the Daily Mirror, where they pay a fee, um, but they just sit on it. Um, in fact, they didn't get it for years. So this is complicated. But basically, the Squidgy Gate tape also gets captured by an amateur yeah, person. Yeah, that's the Diana, the Diana tape with her lover, basically. Yeah, That had come out five, six months earlier. And so when the guy who had the Camilla Gate tape heard the Squidgy Gate tape, he was like, wait a minute, I can cash this in. So he goes and tries to sell it. He does successfully sell it. At the time, it's October, so it's only been a couple months. Um, and the Mar the Waleses have not officially filed for separation yet. So it is true that the newspaper was like, we don't want to be responsible for ending this marriage. So they hold it until, you know... <laughs> The Waleses announced their separation in December, and then they publish in January. Um, so the timeline is like a little bit different. But um, it was so odd to me that both call, both phone calls, recordings, you could listen to by dialing a number and being paid. You know, you pay like 35 cents or whatever per minute to listen mm -hmm. to the recording. And many, 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 many people did that. Yeah. Um I, first of all, this is the scourge of wireless technology, I guess. But also, like, a, a thing that came to mind was uh, in earlier seasons of The Crown, there would be, like, literally people operating a switchboard and connecting the calls. And it was Im implied that those people could hear everything that was happening on the calls. Um, and, or uh, might. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so um, th that's the only thing that that did come to mind is, like, these people basically have no expectation of privacy because of everything that's happened to them. Um, 
Well, and, you know, Diana's starting to use mobile phones a lot. Like they they all yeah. have mobiles as well. But I mean, here's a there are many questions that I won't delve into greatly about whether it's really possible for amateur people sitting in their little countryside vans or whatever to have picked up these recordings. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it was pretty easy at the time to overhear something, but or to overhear different types of calls that were being transmitted in this way. However, the guy we see uh, who you know sells the Camilla Gate tape swore up and down until he died that he did not record it until I think it was January fourth, and or anyway, it was like it was too late. It was like a week or two after is clearly the date of the discussion. So then the implication is that somebody else recorded it and kept rebroadcasting it until somebody Mm. picked it up. So there are Mm. a whole bunch of conspiracy theories. Like, is it MI5? Is it like people who are out to get one party or the other party? And I think we will never know. Like forensics has been um, deployed on each tape and like people have opinions. Like, I don't want to get into all of it. And if you really care, you can Google Squidgy and Camilligate. Um, But I think we will never know. That is fascinating. And it does help to explain, you know, I wish we'd gotten some of that in the show because it would help to explain Diana's growing sense of paranoia that she has later on in this season. I mean, that's a minor spoiler for the show, I guess. But um, uh, but yeah, it's important context. Like, it's it's really interesting, you know. Yeah, there's a absolutely. lot of details that it leaves out of the show. Like, there's little right. clicks, you know, and like sometimes the audio is like too high quality. Like, it probably shouldn't have been able to be captured in that way, you know. Like, there's just a lot of like weird stuff that's never going to get resolved. Do we want to talk about Elizabeth Debicki as Princess Diana at this point? Yeah, because I think we're not going to get a lot of her in the next episode either. Um, Out of all the major recastings, I think hers is the one that works the most for me. Um, I am not thrilled with what Diana is shown doing or how, like, kind of like the scenes that she's given in this season, because I think they're too. I think they're flattening. Like every, like a lot of the other depictions, you remove some of the worst stuff, but you also remove a lot of the best stuff, and you're left with this kind of. Well, I, I would her, say but... the Diana of season four was highly sympathetic and uh, uh, virtually an audience surrogate. Like she is somebody who's entering into this wild family from outside and, oh, they do things really weirdly. And, you know, there's even this amazing scene of like the fish out of water where it's like, you know, um, you must learn all the times you must curtsy to people and in what order. And sometimes you're not going to be with the prince and you're going to be curtsying to them in a different order, you know, like, and it's like, Oh wow, this is all really obscure and frustrating and confusing. And you're like, you're, you relate to Diana the most in, the, in that thing. So she's super sympathetic. She's the audience surrogate. Uh, Emma Corrin did an amazing job portraying Diana. It's like a really compelling depiction. Uh, this season, I would not say it's a negative depiction of Diana overall, but it is way more negative than season four. Uh, and we'll get to that later. Um, but I don't remember if it's this episode where she's like starts talking to her kids about her, her, um, you know, her public problems. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, think so. that happens until yeah. a little bit later. But, you know, I would agree but, that you at the most charitable read I can have for how they're depicting Diana, Diana is that. 
the pressures of being so naive and isolated have made her paranoid, vindictive, have no boundaries, um, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And a poor judge of character. That I said, I think I think Elizabeth Debicki like nails the look and the cadence of Diana's talk. Like you know, she sounds like Diana. It's like quite uncanny at times how closely it looks like Diana. So like, yeah, Andrew Morton I, is a um, you know consultant to the season, and he has said it like actually freaks him out at times how yeah. much they are the same. Yeah. So I think in terms of the look, the, you know, what Diana actually, what it felt like to actually talk to Diana, I think the show's nailing that. I think in terms of the actual person of Diana, who, again, was brought to life very beautifully and vividly in season four, that depiction is, you only see glim- glimmers of it in season five. It's barely in here. And that is a shame um, because she was the most human part of the show for a long time and and she's still uh, the most relatable like to all of us right like i still find her an inspiring character or not character but like person um even knowing a lot of stuff she did was like stuff she might not have been proud of um or that i wouldn't be proud of if i had done i still yeah i do like roxana hadati who we mentioned last time who is another decoding tv host who's recapping um the white lotus with you writes for vulture and um has said that she thinks they did diana dirty on this season and overall i don't think that's i don't really disagree i don't really disagree yeah indeed okay so can i just say one little easter egg from this episode i know you don't like my micro examination of the andrew portrayals but um there is a point where um the way ahead group is meeting and charles is being yelled at for um having given the interview and um you know because prince philip likes to yell at charles and uh he asks him to recite what is the motto of like the welsh regiment i think that he has a ceremonial title for anyway it's better death than dishonor and uh the camera cuts to andrew as Charles says better death than dishonor. Mm. Interesting. Let's stick a fork in Andrew while we can. Something to think about for the future reality. Okay. Let's talk about episode six, Epati of House. Epati of House, season five, episode six. We begin in 1917 London. We see a dispatch asking George V, Elizabeth's grandfather, to send a ship to retrieve his cousins, the Romanovs from Russia. We later learn he declines the request based on the advice of his wife, Mary of Tech who we saw in the first season of The Crown. Without an escape, the Romanovs are all executed as part of the Russian Revolution. In the 1990s, we see John Major and the Queen building relationships with the post-Soviet Russia, hosting Boris Yeltsin. He in turn asks her for help and Phillips in identifying the Romanov remains. Philip and the Queen seem to be living separate lives, echoing their depiction in the first two seasons of The Crown. Philip goes down a rabbit hole learning about Russian history and his own history. Because everything is a metaphor, somehow Russia-UK relationships are a symbol of the Queen's marriage, and the 1917 request for a rescue ship is a prompt to debate whether Mary of Tech was threatened by another princess being in the UK, a.k.a. whether the Queen feels threatened by Penny Romsey. Instead, the queen decides to tacitly endorse whatever's going on by bringing Pen- a penny closer into the family fold. So that's what happens this episode. Overall thoughts, uh, I-, I have to say, this is pretty good The Crown episode. Like, this is what The Crown in general does well. I, I think that in terms of pacing, this season is a disaster. Because 
we left episode four with like season four with like, wow, like what's going to happen with Princess Diana next? This season seems completely uninterested in following that plot line on any word close to a consistent basis. It does not understand that in both the public's eyes and in the viewer, like in the public's eyes at the time and the viewer's eyes, Princess Diana has completely eclipsed everyone else in the crowd. Like I, all I want is 10 episodes of what's going on with yes, Diana, Diana exactly. and Fergie, Diana and her, you know, people she's sleeping with, you know, all of it, Diana and her children. Instead, it's like, remember when Queen Elizabeth's grandfather decided to con- consign these people to death? It's like, who gives a shit? I'm sorry. Um, all that being said, solid episode of The Crown. What'd you think? Um... I did wonder how they were going to get through the 90s without acknowledging the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, they love Mm -hmm. to do these kind of like ties to major historical events. So as it goes, I actually think this is pretty good. I do wish, like you're saying, we could still have more of the momentum or some kind of backbeat of like, you know, this other horrible stuff that's going on with the Waleses. But we get what we get, um, which is a not very helpful look into the philip and margaret marriage at this point or philip and elizabeth um but overall it mostly for me worked so i I acknowledge what you're saying about pacing and you know kind of where it falls in the season um it does feel like every time we start to get a little momentum with either dinah charles it gets interrupted um but I appreciated being reminded of how tangled and and really honestly learning for the first time in some cases how tangled like the European aristocratic families are in terms of intermarriage. Um, And the other thing that this really did for me is frame that it really wasn't that long ago that we had lots of monarchies and that almost all of them ended with people abdicating or being violently deposed um, or being at best, sort of sidelined. So the queen, Elizabeth, at this point, is the most powerful monarch probably remaining, or one of the most powerful ones, even though her role is relatively symbolic. Um, And she doesn't have to look very far back in her own history to be surrounded by examples of people meeting much worse ends. And so I, I think it does kind of heighten the stakes for this could all end for us at any time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I also liked the the Philip um, Elizabeth stuff. You know, it, it's it's other than Philip being a completely unrecognizable character for the whole season. This is like a good plot line between. You know, it's rare to see depictions on screen of people who've been married for forty seven years. You know, and it's like, what happens after forty seven years? I haven't even been alive for forty seven years. You know, so it's like, can I imagine like? what would happen to someone after they've been with someone 47 years and it's like people grow apart, they become different people. um, And it's like, how do people handle it? And in this episode, we see Philip saying, Hey, I have my own interests. You like horses when they're riding on their own. I like horses when they're attached to carriages with wheels on them. Okay. And never the twain shall meet. Uh, And so it's like, they they clearly have irreconcilable differences, but he's like, look, I'm going to, I'm seeking companionship elsewhere. Um, you shouldn't be offended by that. In fact, you should accept it um, and understand that it's actually better for everyone this way. And it felt like a very like, it's not like scandalous, you know, in the show. It's just like, hey, look, I have a friend. Um, she satisfies an intellectual need that I can't satisfy with you. And it's like, it felt like very mature. I'm not saying this is perfect for every marriage, but it's just like, this is one permutation of it. 
uh, of how people could handle it. And I felt like um, that's that's pretty interesting. Look, I don't really care that much. And, you know, it's like because I'm like, where the Princess Diana? Stuff, like, when are we going to get to the Princess Diana stuff? Like, why are we dealing with this right now? But like, as an episode of The Crown, it's like a good episode of The Crown, you know? Uh, it, I, I could have watched this in season three and it would have been like, I know the Soviet Union didn't fall at that pine and you couldn't have that metaphor, but like, you know, um, and they wouldn't have been as old, but it's like, okay, like. But, you know, um, I think it is fair to remind us that like interesting things are happening even to our elder statesmen at this point, you know, yes. like Philip really did contribute his DNA because Philip and Elizabeth are like third cousins, you know, like, so they're both related to the Romanovs and sort of different ways. And so he really did contribute his DNA. All this stuff really did happen. Yeltsin really did order the teardown of Ipatiev house under orders from above. Um, and he really, you know, I mean, it, it is quite a lot of coincidental and momentous history that comes together as we see um, in the very violent beginning of this episode um which yeah, was and, honestly and that's what, stunning to watch you know yeah, children being killed it's very rare for the crown to go that hard okay the crown went real hard at the beginning of this episode and it's and it's done extremely well like it's shot and edited extremely well and acted very well you know it remind the crown is reminding you hey when we want to do like incredibly brutal gripping drama and horror we can still do that and that's that's impressive to see um, you know, one thing I did appreciate with the DNA testing and everything is like, oh, wow, like, what would it be like to be part of a family where, like, everyone you're connected to is literally, like, the people that you, Joy, and I read about in the history books? Like, you know, all of your family, you know, like, you and I, I, I don't know about your family, but, like, my family, I actually know your family has some, has some place in the history books, but, like, mine does not, as far as I, like, you know, I'm, like, a person without a lineage as far as i know like none no one of my ancestry did anything of note and so that it does give me this vicarious thrill of like watching this episode and being like oh wow her you know her grandfather was king and like he was connected to the romanovs which is you know like and it's like oh wow you feel the weight of all these traumas and decisions like reverberating throughout history in the episode. And it's really a solid, not it's that a, long ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a good episode of the crown. It's a good episode of the crown. It's, it's certainly not bad at all. So, okay. Um, fact checks, anything about this episode you want to mention in terms of how accurate it was? Well, the big question is, did George the fifth really get a request to extract his cousin and family and decline it? And yes, I think that basically is right. Um, so, um, there were some like little fun details in that scene. He is shown like kind of mostly interested in a stamp that is on a letter. So he has a parrot on his shoulder, I think. Yes. Right? So he did eat breakfast with a parrot every day and he did have an incredible stamp collection. He was like <laughs> hardcore into philatel- mm-hmm. philatelism, phil- phil- that word stamp collecting. Mm-hmm. And um, he was a philatelist. Um, and his stamp collection is still part of the property of the crown and it's worth something like a hundred million pounds. It's really pretty incredible, supposedly. Um, so uh, George V does not extract his cousin for more like geopolitical reasons um, because the UK is allied with Russia at that point. The Tsar has already abdicated. So when you say you're you know allied with Russia, that actually means the Bolsheviks who are in charge. And so it would have been like really problematic 
to extract him. But um, also Yeltsin did visit Buckingham Palace in 1994, and then Elizabeth did go for a state visit after that. she I don't think it was like trying to be timed around a funeral. That's an implication they have, yeah. um, and I don't know yeah. why they inserted that. It felt pretty unnecessary to me. Um, but I also loved seeing Moscow. Well, it, it ties all the plot lines together. It, t- it ties together like the pre uh, the prologue, and it ties together like prince philip and donating the dna and, and the marriage and it, like it makes it so that it all it, it amps up the stakes of everything to, to, yeah. to tie the funeral in together so, yeah. so i actually to be fair I, I did like the scene with philip and elizabeth in moscow where she says uh he says like this is not the time to talk about the state of our union and she says i think it's exactly the time and he you know confesses to he doesn't even confess but he you know states that he has like outside interests, quote unquote. Um, And I like that she basically thinks it's an affair and says that, you know, she says, I wish it could have been a secretary with a short skirt, you know, and not someone who was so close to us. Um, And he says, well, that would have made me even lonelier. And you do get the sense that it's probably romantic, if not sexual. And he keeps saying, I've done nothing wrong. And you don't know whether that is because Philip doesn't believe it's wrong or because he hasn't crossed certain lines. And I like that the show leaves it for you to decide um, or interpret however you want. And then (laughs) we pivot into what I think is not very realistic at all. Um, And he says, well, I think if you were to spend time with Penny, you would understand. I want you to befriend her and I want you to be seen with her. And in some ways, he's saying, like, that's my price because the queen says, what if I asked you to cut it off? He says, that's a mistake. That would be a mistake. And it really feels like within the stakes of the drama show we have been watching, that is exactly the turn of the screw that would happen is that Philip would say, not only am I not going to give her up, but you're going to have to, like, make it safe for me. And then he says... <laughs> I feel like if you spent time with her, you could learn things such as why the Romanovs really got killed and what your grandfather had to do with it. And then it leads (laughs) to this horrible interaction that's like part like rivalry between the two women, part Nancy Drew. um, And it was unnecessary. I felt like we could have had the rivalry without the Nancy Drew piecing it together. And it could have been very good. And so I just wished I thought this episode was pretty good. I thought it could have been even better if they had just kind of held back a little bit. Well, I think it's trying to do what the crown does best, you know? It's it's what it's it's very crown esque what it does. Yeah. And yeah, I actually like I actually liked that scene of the I agree the whole like mystery was kind of dumb. It's like, okay. But I like this is like the one episode that I've actually a fan of Imelda Staunton's performance in this season where she basically is super passive aggressive. She's like, it's so nice that you did a little reading for this. You know, like what a, what a great job you did reading for this. Like, look at you going above and beyond. It's like very patronizing, but then she then follows it up with, Hey, you're going to come with me to this Christmas thing. So like, no one's going to ask any questions and, you know, and that's nice. It's, it's, it really felt like this is the scene where it felt like, Oh, this is kind of like the queen I recognized from the previous seasons, you know, like, the queen from previous seasons would be passive aggressive and would actually have like some hint of kindness in her. You know, it it, it felt recognizably to me like what she has been like. But what um, did you think about the scene after that when she silently sheds a tear, basically? 
because it was so weighty for her to confront Penny in that way. Was it the Penny thing that was happening in that scene? I thought she was just kind of just reflecting on the weight of all the stuff that happened to her in recent past. I mean, I guess that could be. (laughs) It's up for, I mean, no words are said. She doesn't say why she's shedding a tear, but we've never seen the queen really cry except I think maybe in the Welsh school disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. I guess that's kind of my reaction to that. It's like, I, I, I think you're right that like, I'm so distracted by the plot of it. Like, Oh wait. So it wasn't because she was jealous that that's what, you know, like, I think it is uh, because she's jealous. You know, she's sort of, no, like no, I'm sorry. It, it wasn't because the other queen was jealous. Like, her grandfather's wife was, you know, like, right. I'm still, right. I'm still like, trying to figure out like, wait, so what happened? Like, she's, she's like, it's cause she was jealous. And then the queen's like, no, it wasn't. There was other stuff going on. And then I'm like, okay, wait, like, I'm still like processing that information. Um, it's what happens when you, this is the downside of having a metaphor be like what the relationship is. It's yeah, like, absolutely. I'm, I'm not thinking about the relationship. I'm thinking about the metaphor, you know, and that's what I was thinking about. in that. And moment, speaking so. of accuracy, this one was made up. So like these two princesses did not grow up together in Germany, like grew up in mm-hmm. totally different countries. So they just like pretended for the sake of the show that they were in the same place so that they could draw a parallel to the queen versus Penny. Like who cares? Like it's just not worth that kind of work. I feel like for what feels like, there were so many other ways for the queen to come to this choice herself, you know, and we didn't mm-hmm. need them to like fight it out in subtext. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there we are at Patiev House and it's the mid 90s and the clock is ticking on the Charles and Diana stuff. So I sure hope we get more of it in the back yeah, part really, of the season. <laughs> really hope we get back to the Charles and Diana stuff, considering literally, I would say 95% of the marketing of this season was around the Charles and Diana stuff, and they've barely been in the season so far, in my opinion. I mean, I guess it, like episode five was very heavily Charles, right? But like, and but not a lot some, of Diana. You know, you see her reacting, yeah. you know, very sad, you know, reading the the newspapers after the Camilla yeah. Gate tapes come out. And we also but... saw her do the Andrew Morton book in episode two, but like, it's it really. It's a stunning lack of Charles and Diana in a season that was marketed about Charles and Diana. And uh, I think that's also probably what's leading to some of my dissatisfaction with this whole thing as well, obviously. so. Well, I'll just leave you with this. You know, I had read this quote and I've seen it a few other places um, from Patrick Jeffson, who was Diana's secretary, private secretary, like later in mm-hmm. her life. Um, mm-hmm. And he describes the era of the War of the Waleses as follows. This is what I was hoping to get throughout the entire season. And I felt like we set up in season four. He described the atmosphere during this kind of back and forth, who's leaking what to the press, who's you know releasing what tapes, et cetera, what books are coming out, um, like a slowly pr- spreading pool of blood leaking from under a locked door. And Strong I words. have not felt that kind of creeping horror yet, um, but I do think some of it is coming. I know some of it's coming because we've seen the next few episodes already. So hang in there, viewer. Hang in there. Hang in there. All right. That's going to bring us into this week's episode of Decoding TV. Next week, we'll be back with The Crown Season 5, Episodes 7 through 10. Uh, You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us. Let us know what you think of The Crown Season 5 at decodingtv at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast as well. And hey, leave a review for us on the Apple Podcast, won't you? We'd really appreciate that. You can find us on YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter at Decoding TV. She is Joy O'Napping on Twitter. 
I am David Chen. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.